You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. Refuge is a new church plant in South Austin. Um, man, we'd love to share more about what we're doing with you, uh, share more about who this Jesus is we talk about, in addition to learning more about you, seeing how we can pray for you, how we can walk by you during this season. And so uh, with that being said, I would encourage you, if you're new, to jump back into the video description, check out the connections page, uh, send it in. Love to holler at you. Love to chat. Uh, we're actually going to be in our, uh, the Word today, and so we're going to be spending our time in Scripture. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in Acts. I know a lot of you guys have been following with us, obviously. Uh, if, you are, uh, if you were here last week, if you tuned in last week here, you obviously ain't here, but if you tuned in with us last week, then uh, you saw Sean. He, he took care of uh, the last part of Acts chapter 3, taking a look at, at Peter's second real big sermon in Acts. Uh, we're going to be taking, uh, picking up right where we left off there and in chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4. And uh, chapter 4 really, when I was preparing this week, reminded me of an experience we had late last year. Me and my wife, uh, before our second uh, born was born, uh, we took a, a little vacation to, to L.A., and I loved L.A. I say that, I'm sure you're at home right now, like, ah, L.A., but <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, the reason I probably enjoyed it the most, I was excited to go because I hadn't been to California in general, but I, I was less excited about things like Hollywood or, or, or the beach and all that type of stuff, but I was more excited about going to a, a working-class community uh, called East L.A., Boyle Heights, these neighborhoods on the east side of the city. And you might be wondering, like, why? But, but really, it's because this was like a, a cultural mecca if you're Mexican-American. We grew up watching all kinds of movies that were really based, excuse me, that were really based in L.A., uh, in East L.A., talking about Mexican stories, like movies like Mi Familia or American Me, um, and classic movies. Uh, all of them have Edward James almost in them. Uh, but what I'm getting at is that, that it was like a, a cultural mecca. It was like taking a pilgrimage of some kind, Right. And I was excited to do it, uh, really because uh, I was missing a lot of that here in town. I'm from Austin, and Austin used to have these really classic and awesome Mexican-American neighborhoods that don't really exist anymore like that. And so I was excited to go back, uh, excited to go to L.A. and really experience that again and, and, and capture something that I was longing for. The reason I bring that up and the reason it reminded me of that is because if I'm being transparent, I believe that's the way a lot of us feel spiritually. Man, we're missing, uh, we feel like we're missing, we're longing for some type of richness in our spiritual life, yet uh, we oftentimes can't find it. We feel in a rut, we, we struggle, we, we can't find the hope, the courage, the boldness uh, to share the faith, to, to pray for someone. Uh, we, we can't find often uh, the encouragement in scripture that edifies us and pushes us forward to help us persevere, yet... Uh, I believe that today's text shows us that, that man, there is, a, there is a means by which we're able to, to tap into that. Uh, it's oftentimes not what we think it's going to be. It's oftentimes not what it looks like, uh, what we think it's going to look like, but it's there. Um, and today's sermon is entitled Time Well Spent uh, because uh, it, it's my prayer that today uh, we'll understand that only being with Jesus brings the change, hope, and boldness we desire, but sometimes struggle to find, Okay that only being with Jesus brings the change, hope, and boldness we desire, but sometimes struggle to find. Uh, and so we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick up right where we left off, uh, again, just jumping right in. Uh, but, but 
to help us kind of to kind of guide us through a little bit of um, of the story today uh, of, of the scripture, I should say. Uh, I'm, we're going to try to use two points to navigate through it. We're going through one through almost 22, uh, but the two points are this. First, we're going to take a look at the power of the resurrection. And from there, the power of the resurrection actually in Acts 4 starts to give way to help us see how valuable spending time with Jesus actually is. Okay, they're kind of linked, but but they're almost reverse building blocks, right? So we're starting at the top of the pyramid and working our way down in some ways. Uh, And so let's go ahead and jump into our first point, the power of the resurrection. Uh, And as I mentioned, we're picking up right where we left off, man. Peter and John had just healed the lame man, uh, not like can't dress, but like can't walk. Um, they, they, they heal him, and then Peter goes into a second really big sermon in Acts. And it's a doozy. It has all kinds of fun stuff in there. Uh, and what's incredible, though, is that, that what we're going to see is that unlike last time, not everyone's happy about it. Not everyone's excited about this big sermon. There's some people that are actually a little miffed, and why they're miffed is actually the, the kind of fascinating part of what starts us on this journey. Take a look at verses 1 through 4. While they were speaking to the people, they being John and Peter, the priest, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 5,000. 5,000 people. Peter talks, and man, they are impacted by uh, what he's saying, by his, by his sermon. And 5,000 people, uh, 5,000 men come to faith. You start adding in women there, and all of a sudden that number is easily something like eight to 10,000. Now you add in the 3,000 that came to faith just like, like the last chapter, and you easily have a church in Jerusalem that went from about 120 people to over 10,000 people in the span of probably like a week. Right, and so, so they're going to be navigating a lot of crazy stuff in the upcoming chapters. But, but here, before we get to the upcoming chapters, what Scripture is telling us is that despite all these people being radically changed and being devoted to God, there's still some factions of religious leaders that aren't pleased with this. And today, what we're looking at, who we're looking at, is specifically the Sadducees. And it says that they're annoyed because they're preaching or they're teaching the resurrection Okay, hear that. They're preaching the resurrection. The apostles aren't teaching rules, fam. They're they're preaching the resurrection. Okay, I I need us to get that because lives are being changed. Hope is being kind of of spurred up. Uh, Change is happening. Uh, All this stuff is happening not as a result of rules, but as a result of hearing about the resurrection of Jesus. Man, I wanted to point that out because, man, really the first step for us uh, when thinking about how do, how do I really capture that deep sense uh, of, of affection or relationship with God that I might have been longing for is really the resurrection. Oftentimes we fall into the spiritual trap of basing our spiritual identity uh, on rules, on what we've done and what we haven't done. Yet the resurrection teaches us that Christ died in our place and in his resurrection offers us newness of life. A newness of life that does not depend on what we've done in order to be accepted by God, but rather calls us into a new life in Christ where we live out uh, the love that we already have from God. 
where we live out the approval we already have from God, where we live out the joy that he's already given us in Christ. Like, like you see what I'm saying? There are two very different ways of approaching the Christian life. And that's where uh, the apostles are starting. They're starting with the resurrection. Uh, and that's what they're teaching. That's what's changing people's lives. But, but the question then becomes, why on earth would the Sadducees be against the resurrection then? Okay, and I'm assuming some of you know and some of you don't, just like pretty much anywhere else, right? Like, like Sadducees, why would they be against this? Uh, and that kind of has a twofold answer. A part of it is really because of who the Sadducees are, and a part of it is because of what the resurrection means to the Sadducees. Okay, the Sadducees were in that time the religious uh, aristocrats of the day. Man, they were not just religious leaders, they were social leaders, economic leaders, political leaders. Uh, their main claim to power was that they were in control of the Sanhedrin, which was like the, the Congress meets the presidency all in one for the ancient Israelites. Okay? Uh, but that position of power really influenced their theological view because they did not believe in the resurrection. They actually taught against the resurrection, that, that this life is all we know. They didn't really believe in an afterlife at all. And so once the body dies, the soul kind of dies with it. Uh, and let me say this, that makes complete sense if you're a person that is completely comfortable, has all the political power and influence and, and prestige uh, during this day. We don't really want to think about the resurrection if that's us, right? Why? Because back then the resurrection was seen as a revolutionary um, theology, right? It was the idea that God was intimately at work in the world. And as a result, he was going to, to resurrect uh, his people and make everything that was wrong, he was going to make it right. Everything that was bad, he was going to make it good. Everything that was, that was ashes, he was going to make beautiful, right? It's this idea that he's actually the one creating light out of dark. He's restoring and making all things new. And if you're a, you're a person who's in the position of power, this is the exact opposite that you want to hear. And so when they hear this message that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, the very Jesus that they had crucified like a few weeks prior, um, and that now people are coming to him. They're believing in the resurrection. They're believing in the new life that he offers them. And now 10,000 people have committed themselves, at least 10,000, committed themselves to following this Jesus. It would have been more than just a theological concern, but it would have been um, a lifestyle concern. It would have been really the powerful feeling the, 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 the floor shake underneath them. And so when we look at verses 5 and 6, they, they call Peter and John, and they all assemble. They, they really bring the whole crew, because this was not going to be just like a, a theological debate, but rather it was going to be almost like a, a congressional testimony where they were going to call into question things. They were going to really fight to see, hey, how can we start to squash this, because this could mean the end for us. And so it, it's really no uh, coincidence that when you look in verse 7 and 8, Man, they just go hard. They go hard at these guys, right? After Peter and John, uh, verse 7, I'm sorry. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? So they're already trying to discredit them, right? 
But that really opens the door to an amazing response in verses 8 through 10. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you uh, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, and there is no other uh, name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. This is an amazing text, friends. I really, I know that might have felt like we were rushing through a little bit. It was honestly because I wanted to get right here. I mean, this is, this is a really complex text. There, there's not just a whole sermon in this. There's sermons that are found right here. Uh, but in short, Peter builds this grand view of Jesus in front of the very people that killed him. And in that grand view of Jesus, in light of that reality that is Jesus, and he calls into repentance the most powerful, well-respected, uh, religiously, right, religiously, a pure people, a powerful people in the entirety of his culture. That takes some boldness that's unlike anything I've probably ever seen. And it's really climaxed, right? It's really, it's really blown up in verse 11 when he says, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. He references Psalm 118, uh, where now the idea of the temple being built, uh, man, is really dependent on a stone that everyone else rejected. And so the subtext that's happening here is really this call to the religious elite, to those who are in power, to those who are comfortable, to those who are powerful, to those who feel themselves religiously and spiritually pure, uh, th that they now need to wrestle with the reality that Jesus is Lord and King, and as a result, he has the right to everything in our life. And so what's happening is Peter is really looking at them and saying, man, when, when Jesus came proclaiming that there is a devotion to God that starts internally and works its way externally, right? You rejected him and preferred your external purity and your internal corruption. You were fine with that. When Jesus came proclaiming that he was the only way to God, you rejected him and crucified him. But now it is not Jesus who stands guilty, but rather it is you who stands guilty. Because it, the stone, this Jesus that you could not figure out how to fit into your life, when you were building your holy life, and this Jesus came and said, give me everything. I want everything because I'm going to give you everything. I'm desiring you to give everything. And you were like, you know what? I can't fit that into my routine in my life. The one that you rejected and tossed away, that Jesus is now the only foundation that you can build a life pleasing to God with. That's the only one. It's the only one. And really that challenge goes to everybody. That, that challenge is, is a really tough one to wrestle with. It's the idea that in our life, in our life, when we're building our life, 
when we're building uh, the way we see ourselves spiritually, when we're building uh, our, our affection to God, our devotion to God, when we're building our life, what are we building on? And if I'm being honest, what's tough for me is that in pretty much every sermon on this text that, that you, you would listen to, the point that we're supposed to go to here is how do we build this type of boldness? But, but I can't go there yet because what's burdening my heart is that I relate more to the Sadducees right now than I do Peter and John. I, in my heart, uh, man, in my own heart, if I'm being really transparent with you, uh, m- my own life is so comfortable at times. My own life is so uh, comfortable in moments that, that I really don't feel the need to surrender everything to Jesus 24-7. And if you're being honest, and I invite you in right now to just be honest, man, you might agree with me. You might feel like, you know what, you feel the same way too. And the real reality that they're pointing to here, that Peter is pointing to, is that a comfortable life is the enemy of the new life. A comfortable life is oftentimes the enemy of the new life. Okay, think about, think about a, constant, a constant theme in Scripture is this idea that people have struggles to give away the things they've built their identity on. Think about the rich young ruler in Mark 10. Okay, it's this young man that comes and says, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And he, he's like, hey, keep the commandments. And dude's like, man, I, I got the commandments. I got them down. He was a man that desired to love God, desired to obey God, desired to be a moral person. Yet when Jesus looked at him after that and said, great, now take everything you own, sell it, and donate it to the poor. It says that the the young man walks away feeling empty. He walks away burdened, sad. Why? Because what Jesus is saying is that everything you've built your life with, everything you've used to make yourself whole, to make yourself full, to make yourself happy, to give you joy, to give you pleasure, it's all meaningless. If it's not built on top of the the cornerstone that is Christ giving us new life, giving us love from God, giving us affection and affirmation from God through his death and resurrection on the cross. Friend, a comfortable life is often the enemy of the new life. We often, we often, like the Sadducees, get in a, a routine that's so comfortable that we, the, the, the call of Jesus to give everything to him, to depend on him for life, to depend on him for salvation, to depend on him for breath, to depend on him for affection, for fullness, for, for, for wholeness, for affirmation, all to depend on him for those things seems so radically left field because everything that he's saying he can give us is something that we already have. And as a result, when we don't feel that deep sense of dependence, the, the sins, right? I, I've heard it said by, by Jerry Bridges, the author, uh, the, the refined sins, the things that, that aren't crazy, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing crazy sexual stuff. I'm not, I'm not going crazy on drugs. I'm not doing this or that. But the refined sins, 
Sins like bias, sins like, um, uh, sins like gossip, sins like anger, sins like resentment, sins like unforgiveness, they function on the periphery of our life to the point that a call from Jesus like be holy as your father is holy is not taken seriously because it's not doing anything to benefit us. We're really so comfortable that we don't need Jesus. In essence, we have rejected the stone that is the foundation that everything else should be built on. But friends, the, the reality that, that we wrestle with when they're talking about, when Peter and John are talking about the resurrection, when they're talking about this newness of life, is that the gospel does not come to make us better. The gospel uh, does not come to, to make us feel good. The gospel comes to make us new. Jesus comes to make us new. And if we're new, then nothing that's old stays. Right? Nothing that's old stays which means if you can't see it, it doesn't mean that it's, it can stay. It means that in the newness of life, we are called to search the deepest, darkest crevices of our hearts and to, 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 to sometimes painstakingly uh, rain them out and say, Lord, Lord, help me. I want to give this to you. I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to live out the life that you've given me. Not because I'm trying to earn my position before God, not because I'm trying to earn love from God, but rather because I'm already loved by God through you, because you've already given me everything that I need. Friend, the gospel does not come to make us better. The gospel comes to make us new. And in that newness of life, we are called to, to surrender all, uh, to, to, to really give up our comfort Right, whether it's financial comfort, whether it is moral comfort, whether it is uh, um, privilege comfort, uh, no matter what it is, we are called to take even the spaces that make us comfortable and subject them to Christ, subject them to God, and say, God, in this new life, take whatever you want. Take it, refine it, make me more like you no matter where I am. Lord, if you want me to have money, let me use money in a way that blesses your kingdom. If you want me uh, to, to live a life where I feel a sense of, of confidence, where I'm an example to others in how I conduct my life, let me be humble and let me submit it to you, acknowledging that it's only by God that I would have the things that I have and be who I am, as Paul himself would say. Right? Let me build my life on the foundation that is you rather than any sense of self-reliance, any sense of rule-based uh, salvation, any sense of, of, of me. God, let it be you. Let you be the cornerstone. And let me hold nothing back. I think we're actually in the middle of a really great example of this right now. Um, for many of us, uh, we live lives, and I, I don't mean just in our church, I mean across the world, I mean everywhere. We live lives where the idea of police brutality and um, social justice uh, for minorities, for people of color, is so on the periphery of our lives uh, because we don't see it, we don't confront it, that oftentimes it seems to be something that, that we don't feel we need to partake in, 
right? Something that, that we don't have any, any part to play in. Yet we're in a cultural moment where people are saying, no, no, it doesn't matter if you see it every day or if you don't. It doesn't matter if, if you engage it or if you don't or if you, you've ever seen it or if you haven't. It doesn't matter if it's periphery or right in front of you. We are all supposed to be working together in order to provide a solution, to be a part of the solution, to make things right. That's a great kind of parallel to what this newness of life uh, calls us to do. In fact, I would go so far to say that that is a part of how God calls us into the newness of life, right? Like, like man, anything that's on the periphery, any, anything that we, we somehow seemed to subtly in our heart reject and say, no, no, Jesus, I don't know about that. I, I don't know if I, I need to necessarily think about that. I don't know if I need to be worried about that. Or, or you're asking a lot there, and I'm not sure about all those little aspects of our hearts, new life, right, the resurrection, Jesus in his calling us to himself invites us to say, hey, man, here, here, I'm going to give you everything you need, but, but, but really what I'm desiring is that you would also give me everything you have um, and that you, you would lay down your life um, for me. Like the call of justice that we're experiencing right now, um, I believe we're called to do that exact same thing with. I myself. <laughs> Sorry, um, we're called to do that same thing with our life. Uh, we are really, I think, if we look at this text, we're called to play. I think the double role of Peter and the Sadducee. We are we are called uh, to 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 accept the call of Jesus to be a witness uh, as Peter's following the, the the really the encouragement the commands of Christ to be a witness uh, around the world right and so he's following that we're called to do that yet we're also uh, kind of to play the role of the Sadducee that hears where we have and where we have not uh, uh, surrendered our heart to Christ where we have and where we have not built our life on Him. Uh, but unlike the Sadducee, we are called to respond to that, 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 that call to repentance uh, with humility, uh, understanding that, man, God's grace is the thing that calls us to repentance, not his wrath. When we are confronted with those things or that, that it's clear, it becomes clear to us that we have rejected him, we are not called to, to, to relinquish that in shame um, and in guilt, but rather in condemnation is the word, but rather called to release that to a loving father who desires to, to help us walk in the newness of life that he's already given us. And so I think a good question to process here as we close up is, is how do we do that? Uh, understanding that, hey, uh, man, if we're called to, to really live out this newness of life, uh, that, and, and Peter is showing us this great example uh, of how we're calling uh, others to repentance while also living in this state of repentance, really working and, and, and really striving to give all of ourselves to the Lord because of what he's done for us. How do we do that? And that's why the sermon is titled Time Well Spent, because what we see in the text at the end is that this is a result not of hard work. This is not a result of, uh, of, of striving to become better. This is a result of spending time with the king. That's what this is a result of. Check out verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
They've been with Jesus. And so they, 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 they give this zinger of a theological point from the Psalms, right? And, and this is something that, that uneducated guys really would never have done. And, and having perceived that these shouldn't be guys that are really going toe-to-toe with the theological and religious elite of the day, the only thing they could attribute it to is, you know what? They didn't study in our theological schools, but they spent time with their master. You know what, on the grounds of what we believe is theological training, they shouldn't go toe-to-toe with us. But it's not our theological training. It's not our ideas of, of what Christians should be. It's not our ideas of morality or our checklists that are actually proving uh, these men. What actually is proving them, what's giving them, what's empowering them is the fact that they were with their master. They were with Jesus. And it, it was this time with Jesus that shaped their hearts and minds. Friends, understand that, that, man, to take this text from the Old Testament and expound how Jesus makes it make sense would have been a result of, of time spent with Jesus, of looking at him eat, watching him talk. They, they saw when he had moments saying, I need to see that one person. They also saw when he had moments of saying, hey, all these people, they're going to have to wait while I go pray. They saw him read scripture, interpret scripture, teach scripture. They saw him have these moments where he expounded scripture and showed himself in the text. They were shaped by God's understanding that when he calls us to be holy, he requests us to go and give our all. But because of the cross and because of his resurrection, we when we follow Jesus, when we, we we love him. We've given our life to him. We're not met by guilt and shame when we fail at that, but rather by grace and love uh, and truth. When they were with him, their lives, hearts, minds were shaped into something different. Friends, this is the opportunity and the call we have to, to, to really shape and see ourselves turn into people that are humbly accepting calls to repentance, but likewise, those that are extending calls to repentance. Because this, this time with Jesus is not limited to Peter and John. Man, this is likewise something that we have the ability to do now. Yes, I, I know, I can't go and touch Jesus' arm and, and feel his arm hair and, and the, the way they could have done. Uh, but, but the more beautiful part is that Jesus himself said, hey, it's better that I would go so that you would have the spirit because that spirit is not a, a physical uh, relationship and time spent, but rather a consistent, all the time availability of God in us. Oftentimes, the question is less: Is God with you? Are you spending time with God? And it's more: Are you setting aside to spend time with the God that's with you? Uh, because when we spend time with God, we begin to be shaped. We begin to be contoured into his likeness, to see things the way he sees them, to believe things the way he believes them, to love people the way he loves them. And maybe another beautiful part of that is we begin, as we start seeing the scriptures as we spend time with him, as we start learning who Jesus is through the gospels and what he says about uh, he, who he is and what he does in our lives, man, we begin to be shaped by the story of redemption in our life. We begin to be shaped by the story of redemption, the fact that Jesus loves you, that he's given his life for you, 
that, that he has, has, has given himself on the cross and in your place, in my place, received the punishment for our sins so that in his resurrection, we could be made new. We start holding on to that story. We start clinging to that reality. We start acknowledging and even embracing the truth that Peter shared uh, in verse 12, knowing that, man, there is no name under the sun by which I can have salvation, by which I can have joy, by which I can have hope, by which I can have truth. And it begins to embolden us. And so really, friends, man, this example of Peter is for us, not just the Sadducee example, but likewise Peter's example as we tap in and spend time with Jesus. I want to be super transparent. I know that we are, we are planting a church. And so this is especially important for us. Because I know a lot of us went through our, our launch team trainings and we talked about things like engaging people, inviting people, investing in people. And for a lot of us, we were scared into thinking like, man, I don't know if I can do those things. Yet it is not uh, the, the education, the ability. It is the trust and formation of spend that takes place when we spend time with Jesus that empowers us to do those things well. And so, friend, don't count yourself discredited because you haven't studied enough, because you don't think your, 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 your understanding of the Bible is that great. Don't count yourself discredited for that. Man, spend time with Jesus. Allow him. Spend time with him. Allow him to shape your heart, to shape your mind, to shape the way you see things, and, in, 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 and really approach those situations of inviting someone to church, uh, of praying for somebody, of investing in someone's life spiritually. Take those moments uh, and, and ask the Lord to be with you in them. Um, gosh, there's some, some, some more here, but, but I'm going I'm to cut that short a little bit. Um, okay. So how do we do this? How do, and here's a better question, how do we spend time with Jesus? Um, Because I know what's happening right now is that I'm saying, give your time. And you're like, bro, I don't have no time. This is well-intentioned and I think it's good, but you don't know my life and I don't have any time. And I hear you. I hear you. I I run short on time myself. Um, But I'm running short on time right now. (laughs) Uh, But I did want to extend a couple of ideas about how to maximize our time and spend some time with Jesus. Um, The first one is, man, get in your scriptures. Opening the the mouth of God to hear from God, to spend time with God is probably the best way that we can actually say, Lord, let me learn about you. Let Let me know who you are. Shape my mind. Let me spend time with you. But I understand that men, maybe not all of us have the ability to open our scriptures and say, hey, God, I'm going to study this for an hour. So listen to it. Man, the Bible app, the plain old Bible app has like a ton of audio Bibles from a ton of different translations that you can listen to whenever. But there's also fun ones, right? There's like streetlights where, where it has awesome narrators that are able to, to, to share the story of scripture, right? Read scripture over some really banging tracks in the background. Uh, there's also apps like Dwell, right? It's a paid app, but Dwell, where, where they have, um, a, you can choose from different narrators and different backing tracks to, to read scripture to you. The point being, there's almost no excuse for us not to be engaging scripture and hearing it. Uh, and the other, just the, man, take two minutes to meditate at the beginning of the day. Two minutes. Um, take two minutes to think about God. Invite him into your day. Invite him into your life. I could keep going on and on. Um, But in truth, how do we spend time with Jesus? My biggest suggestion to you, in love as your pastor, I want to encourage you, friends, make time. Make time. Um, Make time. The the title of the sermon is is Time Well Spent for a Reason. 
Uh, it's not use the best uh, that you can of your free time. Uh, no matter what you're prioritizing over the few minutes that you can set aside uh, to spend time with God, I want to tell you, and I want to tell you lovingly, friend, uh, it's not as important. It's not um, because without this, without this ability to spend time with God, uh, we are not able to do any of the things. We're, we don't have the courage, boldness, love, patience, affection that, it require, that is required to do any of the other things where we prioritize well. Um, and because of the gospel, we are promised uh, that if we make the commitment to spend this time with God, that he, he promises us that he'll, he'll draw close to us as well. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.